Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 169, I'm Done Being Your Whipping Boy. This week we're discussing season 6, episode 10 of Buffy, Wrecked, and season 2, episode 10 of Battlestar Galactica, Pegasus. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, uh, both episodes 10 this week, which is unusual, but, you know, for what mm. that's worth. Um, so we're starting with Buffy and uh, the second episode of Buffy in a row. Um, and I think you had a production note, a single note, I think you said, that you wanted to <laughs> start with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not not a huge deal, but I don't, I don't know if you... Did you recognize at all the actor who plays Rack? Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, you should <laughs> if, have. If, uh, <laughs> if not having occurred to me at all is an indication of not recognizing somebody. No, yeah. Uh, and I don't know that it's a big deal because the last time we saw this actor, he was a vampire. Um, so this is kind of an interesting case. We pointed out actors before who have appeared in both Buffy and Angel in separate roles. Mm-hmm. Like, like for example, uh, 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 Kumar, mm-hmm. all right? Like, he, he was in Beer Bad and then also was in uh, uh, that Vision thing. Right. Um, but as separate individuals. This, I believe, is the only time where we get a actor who is in the same series, Buffy, but plays two separate roles. Okay. Except for maybe, didn't we see Luke the vampire in a different role as well? Uh, or, gosh. Or am I, am maybe I we did. I can't that? remember now who. Re- remember way back in the beginning, it was like, oh, Luke the vampire. Yeah. Okay, um, so, well, I remember I like, well, there was like Luke and Colin. They all had like really normal names. Um, I don't remember anyway. who else he played though, but you're probably right. So in, in, uh, earlier, the, the, so the actor who plays Rack uh-huh. is Jeff Jeff Kober. Um, he played Zachary Kralik, the vampire who was uh, in the episode Helpless, which is the episode when Buffy turns eighteen. Remember, and she right. has to go through like this. You know, Giles is like giving right. her injections and or right. whatever, whatever, and and like she has to go through this like test. Yeah. That the Watchers Council gives her. He's the, like, uh, super so, creepy serial killer kind of one, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, Which I couldn't and, tell. I can't, like, picture his face in my mind. But, like, and so that's I would why, never have recognized him. And but. it's bumpy vampire face. So, sure. like, you know, with prosthetics and stuff. So, like, yeah. Yeah. Not, not like, necessary that you you would necessarily recognize him. But sure. anyway, so same actor, yeah. different role. This isn't supposed to be, like somehow the same entity came back mm-hmm. as we've seen elsewhere happen mm-hmm. um, in the series or in either series. Um, but yeah, it just happened to be the same right. person playing, playing a new role. But so. I mean, even if I can't picture exactly what he looks like, definitely a memorable part, you know, like a memorable character and performance and everything. Um, mm-hmm. Like that definitely stuck with me. So um, yeah, probably if somebody is, 
compelling and memorable like that, then yeah, you if you can bring them back as somebody else and with a new sort of monster face, then why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so real quick, looked up Luke. Luke the vampire uh, also played the judge. So so that would be the other example. That's right. That's right. Uh, of of the same actor and Buffy, but again, like with much different makeup and prosthetics and right, right. all that right. kind of stuff. So, so you can't really tell who he is right. per se. Right. Um, I mean, these are like the, 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 the guy in Doctor Who who plays like every monster just with different prosthetics on, you know, that kind of thing. But so. like if you have a compelling monster actor, then why wouldn't you just keep bringing them back? Um, so, yeah. Right. Interesting. So anyway, not not a huge necessarily production note but just figured i'd mention it yeah cool so before we get to rack um i feel like um the episode starts with buffy and spike so it kind of makes sense to start with them and then i feel like we can kind of talk through their main beats sort of uh separately we might come back to them a little bit at the end or at least back to buffy um but I wanted to do the kind of, you know, uh, fallout from the previous episode. So, you know, the end of Smashed, they're, you know, getting together um, as the house sort of crumbles around them. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so they wake up, you know, kind of, uh, you know, post-coital, naked, and, you know, Buffy totally, you know, one of those, you know, wake ups doesn't even know where she is at the moment, kind of, you know, a little blacked out from the night before kind of things where, you know, she's suddenly in somebody's bed. She doesn't know who with and how did I get here? What happened the night before? One of those kind of scenes, Um, you know, but also kind of uh, the absurdity too of kind of saying when did the building fall down like it like they were so kind of wrapped up in it that they didn't even register the collapse of the building around them um you know yeah. which is a nice kind of visual echo of you know the situation of like you know you're so she's she's become so kind of uh focused on her troubles and her issues and her traumas and focused on what she needs and what she's doing that she doesn't even realize the collapse of the structure around her kind of, you know, and, you know, so smashed is sort of, I guess more of an active word. Like they are like, if we kind of talked about Willow and Buffy sort of, smashing up their their lives in a sense like maybe kind of in the act of making destructive choices and here Hmm. here it's kind of wrecked like it's done the damage is done like she's woken up she's already done you know what she did and the house is destroyed and she might feel badly about it but she can't do anything about those past decisions they're kind of you know they're already made. Obviously she can, she can and does angst about what she'll do in the future, but she can't take back the things that she's already sort of done. Sure. Sure. Which I didn't at all really think about before I just said that, but 
Well, yeah, I mean, they're both, they're both past tense, smash and wreck, but I don't know that we need to look at it too closely. Sure. Um, yeah. So with Buffy and Spike, like there's a, I mean, Buffy obviously sort of dislikes the situation she wakes up into. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there is a certain sense, like, like you get Spike kind of like doing the like, oh, come back to bed, baby, and let's have another go around kind of thing. And right. I mean, it's kind of Buffy kind of pulls away, pulls away, but doesn't really pull away. And there's like the whole like, like they do start kind of making out again and right. the, and then Spike says like the wrong thing and it kind of pulls her back and is so like right like while I don't mean like like there is the sense in which she you know just wants to leave and be gone but there's also a certain level of she kind of wants to stay maybe or at least yeah is willing to be talked into staying. Right. Well, perhaps. and kind like, of when I say, I, like, when I say she kind of angst about her decision, like, I mean that in the sense that it's not clear what her decision is. Like, she right. she worries about it. She certainly feels strongly about, like, you know, it's not something she just does something without examining her own, you know, behavior and everything, but it's not like a clear cut, you know, one way or the other. Like right. she has a definite back and forth about it. Um, right. You know, and there's a kind of simultaneous, uh, you know, desire to, to, you know, to be with Spike and to just go for it and, you know, kind of, embrace that and indulge it and everything. And then there's that same kind of, you know, I guess disgust, but on the other hand, if she keeps doing it, it can't be that disgusting. So it's, there's a sense of like, is she, it, it's, it seems that that's more that analytical part of her that maybe she thinks she should feel disgusted, even if she doesn't exactly like, there's a part of her that is the part of her outside sure. of herself is kind of outraged with what she's doing. But on the other hand, there's clearly, you know, a part of her that wants to be doing it. And, you know, sure. Uh, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So like, I feel like we've hinted at, the idea of Willow's magic sort of being addiction mm -hmm. in previous episodes, or at least there's sort of been a, you know, sort of a build up to it. Like yeah. this, this episode sort of like makes it blatant. Like we're, yeah. it's not quite metaphor of the week because I feel like we've been building up to it. So it might turn you know, out to it, be metaphor of the season, you know, right. Or, but, or of the, of an arc of the season or something. I don't, you know, it's hard to say. Yeah. But I would say like with, that there's an echo of that with Buffy here too, because mm -hmm. like, 
like I feel like it's one of those things where like with with an addiction at what point do you call it an addiction Mm. and like I I feel like so there's I don't know if we've talked about this before on here there's a sort of philosophical concept called the sorites paradox Mm -hmm. where you where you have do do you know that no okay so it's the idea it's named after some i think i think it might have been socrates but like the guy he was talking with was named sorites or something anyway like the the idea goes like if you have there's a difference between like a grain of sand and like a pile of sand right okay so, like, if you have one grain of sand, it's not a pile of sand. Mm-hmm. If you have two grains of sand, it's not a pile of sand. Mm-hmm. Three grains, four grains, whatever. But at some point, it becomes and a it's pile, hard to right. determine what that point is, right. you know, you have enough grains of sand or, or wheat or whatever, like, to make a pile. Right. And so it's kind of that, that difference between where, like, an amount, you know, become, like, where, where something becomes accountable number to an uncountable sort of amount or you know Mm -hmm. quantity or whatever and and so like i feel like it's that same thing with like addiction in a way at least as it is portrayed here where it's like with willow it's like we've seen tara sort of being concerned we've seen giles sort of being concerned Mm. but none of them like i don't think any of them would have said like you're addicted to magic. Mm. Maybe until Tara, you know, like Willow with the crystal asked her to give it up. Waking up. And like, yeah. And like, there's this like, okay, yeah. Like there's some, like Willow's clearly seems unable to. And so at that point it's like, oh, she is addicted, but you, I don't even there. It's like, but can you nail down the exact moment where she became addicted? Like, Right. And and maybe there's not. Maybe it is just because it's a gradual overtime sort of thing. But I feel like that's exactly what like like this is what we see at the beginning of this episode with Buffy and Spike is almost like we are getting that moment with Buffy. Mm-hmm. Like there is that struggle of like, am I addicted? Am I not addicted? And like this is almost like this episode almost marks that defining moment of, mm. you know, can I can I choose to not be addicted almost? Which seems kind of weird because, like, everything you hear about addiction is, like, that it is sort of a disease and, and right. maybe the people right. are always in control. So, yeah, willpower doesn't and, become enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to, like, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, so I don't want to apply right. necessarily one way or the other. And, and maybe there's not. Maybe for different people it just is different. Like maybe some people just have addictive personalities. Like you hear that term. And so maybe for them, it is just easier or, or there's a mechanism that's easier to trigger within them that they don't really have control over. And for some people, maybe there just isn't that. Right. Or maybe it depends on the thing, you know, for Buffy, it's attractive vampires. Vampires, for Willow, yeah, yeah. You know, it's magic, but like right. vice versa, like, right. Buffy's not going to get addicted to magic and Willow's not going to get addicted to, you know, hot male vampires. Right. We're all susceptible to different things. Yeah. So, so, but I feel like, like we never got that moment with Willow that it has become gradual. And looking back on it, you can say, oh yes, it's clear that she has become addicted, 
but it's not clear when that happened. Whereas with Buffy, like this seems like, like it's more of like that, you know, I came upon, you know, a path and, you know, mm-hmm. now there's two roads ahead of me and I get to choose like which one I want to go down. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a very, it's a much more contrasted, you know, blatant, you know, either I do this or do that. And that's not to say that it's an easy choice or that there's, you know, not subtleties and complications of the choice that she has to think through because there certainly are. Mm-hmm. But like, it does seem much more like there's that moment, like a much more defining moment of, you know, okay, this is a countable number of grains of sand and this is a pile. <laughs> like, right. you know, there's a much more divisive line, right. you know, between that for Buffy than it seems like for Willow. And, may- and maybe that's just because it's a, it seems like a shorter period, right. you know, for her. Right. Maybe that's part of it. Cause we have had some kissing before now and some allusions to kissing before now, right. but like, but like those seem like like there were always sort of extenuating circumstances like oh yes there's like a demon making us sing show tunes and so what do you do at the end of that it's you kiss and like right. like that sort of thing whereas with Willow it's just been a much longer development and so maybe right. it's harder to pick out any particular moment there right well and um, I I it's hard to say like maybe I'll change my mind once I've seen the whole of the season but. I would approaching it for the first time, I would almost have thought that this is not so much Buffy, not so much depicting the moment she becomes addicted, but is this Buffy recognizing she's on that precipice? You know, like there's a part of the element of this episode for, for Buffy that this is a kind of, it is for Willow, but Willow definitely, it seems more like, Yes, she is actively addicted in the sense that she's tried right. to give it up. She can't. She has physical symptoms when she can't, you know, willpower becomes, you know, it's not enough just to want to. Now it's like a physical thing. Whereas like Buffy, it seems like this is the wake up call of, you know, if I keep going in this direction, I won't be able to stop. So you know, that's the, she's, I almost see it more as Buffy is at that fork in the road and is confronted with that decision. Whereas Willow realizes, oh, the fork was somewhere back there and I blew it. And and I didn't even even realize that I took this path. And now I have to try to get back to where I was. And that's what I was trying to articulate. So I think, I think we're agreeing. I think, um, with I think with Buffy, it's like okay, I've had I've had this one blackout drunk night, and now, like, like maybe that in and of itself, like for some people that would be enough to get you addicted, right. and for her it's not, but it definitely could lead that way. Mm-hmm. And now it's just like okay, I have to decide what I'm gonna do right. from here if I'm gonna just go ahead and fall down that rabbit hole or right. am I going to, you know, control it somehow? Right. Um, and if so, how? Right. Um, right. And, and anyway, so I just, I wanted to bring up sort of that bigger theme right at the beginning, just because like, I feel like then we will end up talking about that throughout, sure. um, it, you know, in their different 
personalities, especially when you get things like Buffy saying to, uh, you know, Anya and Xander, like, you know, maybe she has a reason for doing the thing she does. And, you know, she's, you know, proactively talking about Willow, but sort of also yeah. talking about herself yeah. to herself because, like, nobody else knows what has gone on. So, like, right. who else would she be talking to? <laughs> right. Um, well, and there's a few things which, besides just being maybe further along the road to that addiction, I feel like there's some things that separate Buffy what from what Willow's going through and that, like, okay, so Dawn plays, like, a central part for both of their stories. But, mm-hmm. you know, but there is a real sense in which as much as Willow cares about Dawn, Dawn is Buffy's little sister. You know, that is that is the motivating factor that Buffy has to to protect and take care of her sister. And it's 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 not just that Dawn might have gotten hurt at the end or did get hurt and might have gotten killed at the end. It's it's the the guilt she feels when she comes back the next morning and realizes nobody was there for Dawn Mm -hmm. or, you know, Tara was, but she shouldn't have been expected to because she's not living there. Like you shouldn't, you know, be just assuming that somebody else is going to take care of it, you know? So there's that kind of, you know, she still has that to cling to, you know, whereas Willow, you know, has, Tara was more of of the person that was more her motivator there that has yeah. left now. And also the thing that strikes me too is the fact that for Buffy there are there's another active player here. There's Spike. It's not just I'm addicted to my own magical powers or I'm addicted to you know drugs or whatever it is that you know feels good or makes me feel a certain way. It's it's to another person. So there's this unpredictability of what's he going to do? You know, like when she decides to go cold turkey at the end, she can do that. But it also means hanging garlic and crosses around her room because he can come in, you know, like like right. he said, like he's invited now and he has willpower as well. He has like things that he wants and will go for them and will, you know, so that doesn't, I'm not saying that makes it harder or whatever, but like, I feel like that changes the dynamic a little bit. Like there's this other player that she has to now account for because she can talk herself into feeling like that was a terrible mistake and a bad idea, but he disagrees (laughs) and, and he's actively trying to convince her otherwise, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. uh, it just, it, it makes it not necessarily worse or better or easier or whatever. It's just slightly different, I think. Yep. Well, and I would say there's another distinction and, and maybe this kind of goes along with what you were saying about Buffy and Dawn and Willow and Tara, you know, for Buffy, she she feel she feels like like Buffy is the responsible party who abandoned Dawn, abandoned her responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas for Willow, it's kind of the opposite, mm-hmm. where she feels like she was the one who was abandoned. Mm-hmm. And whether 
you know, you can argue about whether Tara's responsible for Willow. Yeah. But but there was, to a certain extent, um, kind of like Xander says, you know, Tara was the one sort of holding Willow back in in a good way. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Maybe not in Willow's view all the time. Yeah. But like sort of objectively, you know, it was good that Willow was so, or that Tara was sort of keeping Willow in check, and now she's not there, and Willow feels a bit like I mean you even you even get like the metaphor of the empty clothes mm. that you know she fills with magic and sort of uses to console herself mm -hmm. right like like there's there's some pretty interesting you know visuals going on there right. like you know that that willow one that willow is even comforted by you know that sort of emptiness and and mm. whatnot but Anyway, like I, I, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, I think maybe I've said more than I need to there, but just kind of feel like that is another distinction perhaps between, you know, Buffy and Willow and, and sort of the direction of the responsibility mm. or, or, or the feeling of responsibility anyway. Yeah. Um, for, for each of them. And I think that's reflected in, in their later reactions towards Dawn where, mm you know, Willow goes out and is like, like ends up abandoning Dawn for hours so that she can go get her magic fix versus Buffy who like realizes she's gone and like immediately rushes out to look for her, you know? Yeah. And tries to find her and, you know, takes care of her and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and the difference of their emotional states too, that, you know, Buffy certainly feels you know, a certain amount of guilt for not doing right by taking care of Dawn, but she also like responds to that by, like you said, taking care of her and changing and being responsible. Whereas like, not saying this is wrong, but like Willow just collapses. Like she just like totally, yeah. you know, and so you kind of see how much farther she's along just in terms of even her ability to sort of, I don't know, handle herself and not have like she just has a total emotional breakdown over it um mm. you know which obviously i think is a combination of like a lot of things like you know it's it's tara leaving it's her it's the physical you know stress of what she's been putting herself through with the magic you know it's uh you know her guilt over what happened like it's all of those things but um like, Buffy's still, for as much as we've talked this season about Buffy's kind of emotional distance and, you know, even depression and all that kind of thing, she's still kind of functioning in a way that Willow, at the end of this episode, doesn't, you know, she just kind of has a, a collapse about it. Sure. Um, yeah. No, and that's a great point, like, because we're, we're coming up on mid-season and it does seem like at this point that that's, I don't want to say it's not an issue, but certainly like, like it's almost like when she said it or sang it at the end of Once More With Feeling, like, like it's almost like by speaking the name of the thing you fear, it becomes less fearful, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
like that idea of like now she's said it now she's revealed the big secret and not that she doesn't necessarily still feel bad about where she is you know being back on earth but mm-hmm. but it's almost like okay like now the secret's out like there's no more secret to be held and so right you know there's not real like like it's almost cathartic in a way i guess is where i'm going with that right like, right like as she conquered that to a certain extent you know yeah um yeah, and not to say that those right. feelings won't crop up ever again, but right. but yeah, like there's definitely there's definitely that sense of you know she's now dealt it, brushed her hands of it, you know, and like a staked vampire can move on to the next thing, and you know. Well, and it it makes me wonder. I'm not saying either way, but to what extent is the stuff with Spike part of that as well, like? There seems to be a sure. certain amount of catharsis in her re- re- relationship with him of just throwing, you know, responsible Buffy to the wind and, you know, uh, doing what is feels right and comforting in the moment. Like, I don't know. I'm just, that's a possibility is that she's exercised some of those demons, you know, because like we have seen that like, He's been the one person that she could, before she finally told that secret to everybody, he was the one person who she could tell it to. And Mm -hmm. even past that, continued to be the one person that she, like, could even stand to really spend time with. So, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily inaccurate to say that, like, a relationship can be destructive in some ways and healthy in others, you know, like... It could be that being with him is helpful to her in some ways, but also bad for her in others. Like, Mm. you know, she could like, you know, I don't know, get what she needs from him while that's to the detriment of her relationship with Dawn, for example, you know? Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I don't I don't know what the professional psychologist would say, but I think you're right. Like I think I think in any relationship there are there are good parts and bad parts and Right. I mean, maybe depending on the relationship that you actually have, you might be willing or not willing to work on certain aspects or not, but like that I don't know that that's necessarily inaccurate to say that. So, yeah. Well, and that's part of the temptation is if she decides this is you know this is not a good relationship she has to make that despite the parts of it that are appealing you know like Mm. if she decides you know that it's hurting my relationship with dawn she has to be willing to give up stuff that might make her feel good you know by being with Spike or, you know, indulging, you know, herself and him in, you know, in whatever. So, you know, because if it was easy, if it was all bad, then where's the temptation, you know? Like, obviously she must be getting something out of it. You know, there's a reason she sits up, like, you know, to put crucifixes everywhere and, like, stays awake all night. Like, she has to stay vigilant, you know? Um... 
So. I guess, I guess we'll see where it Marty goes. Noxon might disagree, but. <laughs> um, so I feel like we kind of jumped all over the place. <laughs> yeah, we kind of did. So I'm trying to think. I'm sure there's stuff to talk about with Willow that we didn't get into. So. Yeah. So I'm still trying to figure out how hmm. um, it might just be that in talking about it, I talked myself around to it, but there was definitely, you kind of mentioned that we've danced around the metaphor of the addiction with Willow, and this is the first open acknowledgement of it. I'm trying to figure out if if I feel like there's a part of me that feels like it escalates a bit quickly and a bit suddenly, um, you know, like I, there's a, yeah. there's a piece of me that wishes there was an episode of, you know, junkie Willow before we had Willow's emotional, like breakthrough and her kind of wake up call. Um, but you mean besides this one? Besides this one? Like, I feel like that could have, like, it, it just feels like well, in a matter of two visits to the junkie house, she goes from not knowing what it is to being, like, 100% hooked, can't, you know, go without it for more than a couple hours kind of thing, which just feels a bit, um, I don't know, rushed to me. But then you pointed out, just because we didn't realize she was addicted doesn't mean it wasn't on in you know on the path to that. So it might just be a, a case of when I look back in retrospect, I'll see a more gradual, you know, slope than it feels at the at the time. But yeah, and I I definitely think Willow's been addicted for a while. Hmm. Like I don't I don't feel like. I don't feel like this is the episode where she becomes addicted to magic. Right. right. I, and she I says feel, the same thing at the end that it's this has been going on for since a while. before Tara yeah. left. Yeah. And she says it's why Tara left. So yeah. like, yeah, Willow seems to back that up that hmm. that even she feels like she's been addicted for a while and that this is, you know, where she can finally admit that that's the case and i feel i i feel like by tabula rasa she's addicted if yeah. not before sure. then certainly at that point sure. where where she's where it's not just like oh i'm using like we don't know how many times she may have used that forget forgetting spell on tara mm -hmm. we know you know that she does at the end of whatever the previous episode before that was but then by the time like she has like a whole baggie of those little forget me not flower sure or, or, or forget me felt flowers i guess they're not forget me not i don't know what they're actually called but like the little flowers that she uses to yeah. to you know mess with people's <laughs> memories like she has a whole baggie of that stuff and we don't know how big or full that baggie was to begin with so i don't know i kind of feel like like when she's at that point where she's like, like Tara finds out and her, 
her initial reaction is like, oh, that's okay. I'll just, you know, make her forget again. Like, right. Like they're like, you're already like, like it's, it's forget, it's forgetful flowers all the way down mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Like she's just willing to keep using them until she gets it right one time and Tara forgets permanently, you know, no matter what happens. Like, I feel like at that point she's already jumped down the rabbit hole. Right. I'm mixing metaphors really badly tonight. But like, I, but again, like, I don't know that I can point to a specific spot to say this is the point at which she becomes addicted, Mm -hmm. you know, versus this is a point like, is she addicted at the beginning of the season when she's trying to bring Buffy back? I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, you get Giles yelling at her and calling her rank amateur, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't. I don't know that at that point I would say she's addicted. I would think, I think maybe she's on the path to addiction. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly because she right. gets there, but like, like I think the attitude is that, you know, the attitude oh, of, it's not a problem. I can stop any time is there. But at that point, like maybe she hasn't sort of gone over the edge. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I feel like, back to the like the grains of sand metaphor is like the only way to tell if it's a pile is to like make a pile like you can kind of only like (laughs) by definition you have to go too far like by the time you realize you're addicted it's already too late you know like unless you're buffy and you and, and some people have just the lucky wake up call right and they're able to you know you know cut you know uh nip it in the bud or whatever but um but it is that thing of like by the time for most people by the time you know willow kind of realizes that it's a problem it's already a problem and it's been a problem for you know right however oh long. yeah um yeah no cer- certainly by the time willow realizes that that's true i just i you know may- maybe after like careful analysis you know, we could write a paper on like the precise moment that sure. Willow becomes addicted. I don't know if that'd be a useful paper, but right. You know, I like I don't. Yeah. Anyway, I I I do think. I do think that it's, you know, like you pointed out that it's, you know, Willow seems to realize at this point that it's sometime before Tara left. You know, so it has been maybe a bit more gradual than we're seeing here. Um, and I think Tara leaving, you know, to go back to your point of like, it seems really fast and, and that's something in common with both of these episodes, right? Like there things, things really escalate quickly in Mm. both of these episodes. But like, I think that's kind of Xander's point too, is that like now that, that Tara is gone, there's, there's no one to hold Willow back. There's no one to kind of, yeah, whether, whether Tara was actually keeping, Willow from addiction or or whether it was just that Tara's presence was making Willow better at hiding her addiction. Mm. One of those things seems to be true. Maybe we don't know exactly which one, but with Tara gone, like neither of those are true anymore. Like there's just no need to either hide it or refrain from being addicted in any way. And so, and then the exacerbation of like, having Amy who's 
who not only who not only doesn't hold her back, but actively encourages Willow yeah. to do more magic and and not just do more magic, but do more like mischievous and destructive magic. Right, um, right. Amy's the the bad influence who kind of introduces right. her to her her dealer and all her kind of yeah yeah um the kind of stuff that has gotten amy in trouble in the past yeah right right and it is kind of funny that like like amy suddenly like immediately knows who to go to and it's like oh well she's had this connection for years apparently and right hmm. Right. right well and like you know it's not quite the same it's not like I don't know if the metaphor quite works, but it's like, all right, Amy, you just spent three years as a rat and now you're going to get your human life back. And what are you going to do? You're going to go straight to like the, you know, magic dealer. Like it kind of feels like, you know, stories of people who, you know, for whatever reason, get out of, you know, a stint in prison and then, you know, go straight back to their, you know, their same old connections you know, that thing of, like... Associating with known felons. Addiction and, yeah. is addiction, no matter... And and you're going to do, you know... It doesn't matter that... Like, it's not enough to, to say, didn't you learn anything from where you just were? It's like, well, you know... And, I mean, obviously, there are many different reasons for doing that. But, you know, that's not an uncommon thing. Like, it's... You don't always get out of a bad situation determined to kind of, you know, change your life. Sometimes you don't learn anything. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not like Amy, it's not quite the same cause it's not like she's about to become a rat again, but you know, it's that same idea of like, you would think Amy would be kind of looking forward to just, living a normal human life and you know that's not the case she wants to get right back in with the with the old crowd and you know Hmm. um and part of her old human life is the freedom to practice magic you know which she couldn't do as a rat you know so there's a a sense in which she's indulging in things that she's been deprived of you know Mm -hmm. like sure you know she's had this kind of stifled Mm -hmm. existence and so part of the fun for her is to let loose and, you know, you know, have, you know, do some of the old kind of spells that she used to get up to and everything. Hmm. Um, and having Willow to kind of, uh, you know, Amy can be the, the slightly more worldly experienced one who can kind of like, you know, street smart show her where all these connections are and kind of lead her along and everything. So. Um, so yeah. And so they go to rack, um, who, you know, Amy kind of ruefully says Willow is his new favorite. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, which there's some kind of, you're not quite, they keep it kind of fuzzy, like exactly what's going on, but there's some kind of exchange of energies there where he, there's kind of, he says right. like, you have to give a little to get a little and, and she has to pay some sort of price. So he's, 
He's drawing things out as well as putting things in. And so there's something about Willow's powerfulness that makes her a favorite of his, that he's getting something from her as well. He's not just giving stuff out for free. Um, Which what dealer does, you know, obviously. Right. You know, and and there's very sort of sexual undertones to it as well. Like there's. There's a sense that, I mean, I don't, like I'm not saying have sex, but I, you know, I do think there's, there's sort of that implication of like, yeah, the 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 drugs for sex kind of mm. idea going on there that Willow's giving something that she would otherwise be unwilling to give mm. or or doesn't even necessarily know or understand quite that she is giving up. There's sort of an innocence. Mm-hmm kind of an ironic in a sense because like i don't feel like we think of willow as innocent at this point but like yeah like there is sort of an innocence there that that she's giving something away that you know maybe she yeah didn't realize she was or or doesn't even know she have mm-hmm. has in, in that sort of thing so yeah um and yeah so so there is some sort of exchange and Willow's sort of writhing on the ceiling and hallucinating and, mm-hmm. you know, again, sort of all these sort of druggy metaphors. I don't, I mean, I don't know that we need to go into detail about sort of her experiences at Rack, but like she does see sort of this thing moving around and it turns out later to be somehow she conjures it, right? Like, mm-hmm. Which again sort of goes back to the idea that Rack is using her own power somehow mm-hmm. in, you know, doing whatever it is he does for her. Right. And um this thing comes after her. Right. Uh and Dawn later. Well, okay, so she goes the first time and then she goes the first time with Amy, and then she goes back the second night. And the pretext going out with uh, Dawn on the pretext of, like, making it up to her that, you know, because she wasn't around the night before. Mm -hmm. But she just needs to stop by somewhere real quick before they go to the movies. Real Mm -hmm. quick turns into several hours. Right. Where Dawn sort of left in the waiting room, you know, the foyer of a, you know, magic slash crack house. Right, right. Sort of place. And... When Willow comes out, she doesn't even realize how much time has passed. Sort of has her, you know, dark-eyed, mm-hmm. you know, black eyes thing going on. Which is like, this is like when she's accessing her deep magic, right? Like, and, right. And, you know, we've seen it before when it's like, you know, this is like serious Willow. Yeah. You know, in her magic. but Right, like when she, she went after Glory, I think. Was that the first time that we really saw that, you know... Right, like, when she went is, on her own. and Which yeah. is like, you know, like even then, I feel like there was that sense of this is, you know, even if you're on her side in the sense that you are rooting for her to get sort of, to beat Willow and to get vengeance for Tara, or to beat Glory and to get vengeance for Tara and everything, there's still a sense of like, the black eyes is like a marker of danger. You know, like that this is, not you know necessarily 
not necessarily her, her motivations might be good in a situation like that, but what she's accessing isn't straightforwardly good. Like she's drawing on something kind of darker to do that. So hmm. yeah. So the fact that we get it again here, I feel like only reinforces that of like, you know, it's it, like the black eyes. It's like, it's not just powerful Willow. It's like, dangerous willow too you know <laughs> right yeah no definitely like this is a willow that might you know feel like she's in the right but you don't want to get in her way like she's no longer going to distinguish right and wrong she's kind of on you know you know her path for whatever that she's going to do so you know immediately you know, disregarding of Dawn, like her whole personality shifts, you know, normally Willow would pay attention to Dawn if she said she was scared and wanted to go home. And, you know, Willow is normally compassionate and sensitive to those types of things. Um, and here it's like that kind of, you know, silly kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, pushing Dawn and further than she wants to go. It's sort of this reckless side to Willow that we aren't used to seeing. Yep. So yeah, so so the the demon comes after them. They get in the car, you know, and magically she starts driving it to lose the demon, but then of course runs them straight into a wall. Um, right. So sort of building on the, you know, drug metaphor to, to like the yeah. driving well under the influence kind of thing, right. sort of the reckless, right. you know, not really, you right. know, driving well and yeah. Right. Not being in her right mind. Um, right. Crashes. Dawn hurts herself. Well, Dawn is hurt. She doesn't hurt herself because she's not the one driving. But, um, yeah, this thing comes out. They sort of, like, put up a, you know, sort of kind of a resistance. But, you know, Buffy, fortunately, Buffy and Spike are out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so the, uh, I know we've sort of abandoned Spike and Buffy. Uh, Buffy, upon realizing... Well, upon catching Amy in the house and interrogating her to mm -hmm. somewhat, she, like, goes to Spike, who who kind of knows who this rat guy is, and they go out searching. Hear the screams mm -hmm. and, you know, run and, and see this, you know, demon sort of harassing Dawn and Willow. Um, big fight. The demon just kind of poofs away. Yeah. Um... And and then, yeah, we get hurt Dawn sort of being ushered away. And then, like, Spike takes her. And, and then Buffy and Willow have a confrontation yeah. where Willow sort of breaks down. And Buffy sort of initially is completely uncompassionate, but then kind of, yeah, you know, smooths over a little bit and they go back to the house well there's so. that kind of acknowledgement that not that not that it's out of willow's control or that it 
excuses her of anything, but there's that recognition of how far gone she is, you know, in a way that none of them even realized. Like they were all maybe starting to worry about her a little bit. Um, but Buffy up till now has been very excusing and forgiving of her. So I think mm. there's a kind of a little bit of compassion comes in when, you know, it's Willow begging for help. And, you know, if you're Buffy, you have to kind of realize I didn't even really know that you needed help. So like, you know, mm. it's again, not that that means it's not her fault at all, but you know, when you're dealing with addiction, there's an element where, yeah, it is somewhat out of your control. Um, at least right. to a certain extent. Um, you know, and I think like Dawn's slap plays a part of it too, that, you know, it's not just going to be uh, forgiveness and hugs and roses that, you know, there's real, not just physical damage, but there's real damage done, you know, in terms of her ability to trust Willow. Um, Hmm. Yeah. So. So, yeah, so they have their, you know, talk on the bed where, you know, Willow talks all about her issues. Buffy doesn't talk about her own issues, but obviously she's thinking about them um, and kind of agrees with Willow that, you know, stopping is you know, the right thing to do. And they both kind of, you know, decide to do that. Um, you know, when you get Willow with her, again, like with the, the visual cues, you know, her kind of night sweats, like train spotting, you know, like not quite that graphic, but like going through her withdrawal, you know, um, that it's, it takes like a physical toll. It's not just an emotional thing, but if she goes off magic, it has this sort of physical reaction to her. Um, so the question, you know, becomes, can they stick to it? Um, yeah. So do you want to take bets or? Take bets. Um, I mean, I feel like we've invested so much in the plot line in the first half that it's certainly not going away in the second half um so i would imagine that i'd be surprised if there wasn't some backsliding on both parts um you know i mean obviously there will be strong temptation but I i'm gonna place my bet that to one extent or another Neither of them is getting out of this without some backsliding. <laughs> I don't think. I think we're too early in the season for that yet. Um, things Fair enough. things escalated and got resolved a little too quickly. Like, I I believe they have the best of intentions, but you know. Um, yeah, and I mean it's clear at the end of the episode that they're both struggling. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I mean, like I said, Buffy has Spike to contend with and the fact that she's not the only player involved in her situation, which makes it tough. And then I think for mm -hmm. Willow, 
there's just the sheer physical addiction to it, you know, that can she, cause yeah, maybe she's only really become officially addicted in this last season, but she's been using magic since what season two or something like way early in the series, if not season mm-hmm. one or I don't remember. Yeah. When. Like, right. And I mean, yeah, basically season two where, we talked about it as more like almost just like chemistry, right? Like she was just right. sort of reading recipes and right. and doing that. And now it's obviously right. she's tapped into much stronger. Sure. Impulses. Sure. But, you know, my point being, I don't see her giving up magic that easily, you know? Um, so, yeah, that's my... That's my prediction is that, uh, you know, we'll see them dabbling a bit more. Um, but, but the other thing too, is that nobody knows still about Buffy and Spike, you know, like it, if, if Buffy backslides, only Buffy knows, you know, or, and Spike. Whereas with Willow now, there are all these sort of, you know, there's been all these consequences. Like if she starts doing magic again, it's, you know, it's going to be harder to explain that and justify it and not have consequences because she's already like lost her girlfriend and almost gotten Dawn killed and everything. So I feel like there's more of a sense of like pressure for Willow to, you know, kind of stick to that. Whereas Buffy's thing is still very like private. So. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I guess we'll see. Um, yeah. Cool. Not not right away because we have an angel episode next week. Right. But, you know, we'll, we'll get there. We will. All right. Well, on that note, I guess let's move on to Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. And you had some production notes, I think. I did. Um, a couple quick things. Um, that uh, this is, a I think, a pretty well-received... Um, uh, episode that it was uh, nominated for a Hugo. Um, it lost to The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances, incidentally. Um, but it was nominated. Um, and Trisha Helfer was uh, nominated for uh, for her performance in this episode for a Leo Award, which is some Canadian, you know, TV, film and TV award. Um which is interesting. I feel like we haven't had a lot of acting nominations yet. So like, you know, the acting being noticed beyond just like technical, like special effects and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And interesting that it's Trisha Helfer, who I think is great as number six, but like, this is the first time where it's really giving her a different, you know, role to play really. Um, And, you know, and that that was immediately sort of well received. Um, And especially as like, you know, I think I think we mentioned like she was like 
a professional model before this. So not that models can't act, but, you know, she wasn't necessarily a professional actor before this show. So kind of showing a new like range for her and that she actually does have, you know, quite a big range. Um, so wanted to mention that. Um, wanted to mention that this is the mid-season cliffhanger finale. So between, you know, this and the next episode, there's like a three-month break or something like that. Um, you know, so they kind of left you on this cliffhanger for a little while. Um, and then finally wanted to mention uh, the new writer who wrote this episode. This is her first episode. Um, her name is Anne Cofell Saunders. Um, and she continues to write for seasons two and three. Um, and went on to write for other shows like 24 and Chuck and Smallville and uh, hmm. Revolution and uh, and a show which is coming out this fall, actually. I looked her up. Um, there's this new, like a time travel show called Timeless, which she is writing for, too. So, hmm. you know, has continued to get a lot of work. Um, so, yeah, kind of nice for her to come out of the gate with a strong episode that got some acclaim so um you know just worth uh pointing out cool so where Very did cool. you want to start yeah so this is one of those episodes where it's tough to talk about given that we pretty much have everyone and their brother plus an entire new Battlestar new cast people yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to like deal yeah, with. Yeah, we like double the um, credited cast in the matter of an episode. So, yeah. Uh, maybe, like, I guess they want to kind of take it through sort of the major plot points and then like for each one kind of talk about how the characters interact when they're, because I, mm -hmm. I do feel like like we're talking a little bit before we started recording about how this episode, it does have a pretty, I don't know that it's exactly in the middle, you know, where it goes, but you do have a pretty like good incline in sort of relationships and hope and all of that. And then you get like to the middle and it just like talk about escalating quickly, like, mm -hmm. or, or de-escalating quickly or whatever. I don't know what the right term is, but like, yeah, like you just kind of like you have this build up and then it like quickly plummets over the other side and kind of goes down. But you have like all of these different relationships that are sort of built in the first half of the episode and then or sort of started in the first half of the episode and then sort of become conflicts in the second half. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you can can talk about it that way. Um and maybe even before that, like you, you get like this brief scene right at the beginning of Starbucks sort of trying to convince Rosalind and Adama to go back, mm. you know, to Caprica. And I don't like I don't think that has that's like important for like later, mm -hmm. <laughs> but like I don't think it has a lot of significance right now. But um, just sort of wanted to note that. And, and both Adama and Rosalind are like, well, you know, we don't can't really spare the ships you know, we can't leave the fleet alone here mm -hmm. and, you know, it would take way too long and may not even be possible mm -hmm. to go back and do that. Um, and I do think there's some things in this episode which sort of hint to that possibility being 
maybe becoming more possible mm -hmm. later, but like maybe I'll make one or two notes as we're talking through it. But I, you know, sure. just want to sort of note that up front. Um, but the big, the big news, of course, is they get this new blip on the radar on the Dreadus. Sorry, mm -hmm. not radar, but Dreadus, which clearly is something completely different from radar. Yeah, it's um, space radar. Much, right, it's space dark. <laughs> uh, and at first they think it's a Cylon ship, but then it turns out to have colonial codes and, you know, they send all these recognition. There's like this whole back and forth. This mm -hmm. is like, it's like this funny thing of like, you're in this super high tech spaceship where you, you know, you have all these instruments and can t detect all these things. But like, if you were just able to like look out the window right. and see, right. you would like realize like what's going on. But like because you can't just do that, yeah, you have to like build in like all these like safety protocols and recognition codes right. and counter codes and like you know all these like different things to like make sure it's really who you are. And then and like even like like there's all of that, but then it's even like once Adama and Kane talk to each other, they like recognize each other's voices. Right. Like you know, right. like if if you had just done that from the beginning, you would know who you were talking to. But like. Again, because you can't just, like, look out the window and, like, look at the right. person you're talking to or even hear their voice. Like, you you end up having, like, all these checks and balances and all this stuff. Yeah. not saying those are bad, necessarily, but it's just kind of funny, like... Yeah. Like, and, and I'm not saying... And, like, I don't... That's certainly not a mistake. Like, I'm not criticizing the show for that. Like, I think there's... I think that's probably a reality of, like a reality of space flight. Like there's so much space flight that we actually do, but you know what I mean? Like, right. That would be something that you would have to figure out if you right. get to that level of civilization. And, and I think we even sort of alluded to it, like way back, maybe in some early episodes of like how they still use like wireless, right. you know, radio technology, not right. like wireless cell phones and all that, but like, right. like old school wireless of like, you know, basically a, a radio like a ham radio right. to like communicate with the rest of the fleet kind of thing right. whereas like basically a really old technology that it just happens to work really well in the darkness of space and right um so right. anyway like you know uh so they see this new ship turns out to be a battlestar pegasus um there's a lot of excitement going on and uh you know on on the galactica when sort of the the landing team mm -hmm. uh you know comes by and and admiral kane steps out and there's like all this joy and excitement and yeah um you know sort of it's an intro i think i feel like it's a jarring sort of experience for us yeah. as viewers i i feel like almost in a sense we we're sort of invited to feel alongside um, uh, uh, Roslyn mm -hmm. at some points in this episode. Mm -hmm. We're like... More skeptical. Well, I don't even know if I'd say skeptical, but like... Like, she's the civilian. I mean, you get Baltar, but he's always weird. Like, <laughs> right. I don't think we're ever invited to, like, associate with Baltar. You know what I mean? Sure. But like, Roslyn... Roslyn's the normal she's the teacher she's the non-com she's not military she's right. just a regular person 
who's kind of okay she's the president so not quite regular person but like you know she was a teacher she she's not like someone who's used to sort of the military stuff and even the military stuff that she's experienced has been sort of on a personal level like with Anama. and yes there were some bad times and we don't want to discount that but like like this yeah. is where we're like like we're invited to sort of like be with Rosalind in the crowd like looking around like oh my god what the heck's going on here with all this like yeah military pomp and circumstance and like when when they're in the the room and it's just her and Adama and Kane and she's like oh sometimes I forget you know about the whole military structure thing <laughs> and it's like yeah you know that's in, an interesting thing to say sitting in the commander's cabin you mm-hmm. know what I mean like and but I think again we're sort of invited to be like like yeah okay like I know we're watching a show where predominantly we're looking at military stuff but we're not like military ourselves and so like maybe not all of the implications are clear of like an admiral who is in charge of not just her own ship but would be in charge of you know an entire fleet of ships right and the fact that she outranks you know adama and that sort of thing and and we kind of get like the brief explanation like you know this is um oh what what does drought call it uh when he talks about the lord of the rings the um uh, 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 so like the uh, levels of knowledge kind of thing of yeah like, like oh there's the, a word the, I know what you mean the 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 uh, yeah I know epistemic what you mean. the epistemic regime yeah, right of yeah. of of the the person with sort of the least amount of knowledge being the viewpoint character right right and uh, I always forget that term but it always comes back to me too at some point yeah, uh, yeah the epistemic regime where where like she's like the one who's sort of least in the know about military protocol and, and the military implications of this newer, sleeker, faster, better equipped. And yet with fewer people we're told as well, uh, Battlestar that's run by someone who has a higher rank, like, like all of the military implications of this, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, appearance we're, we're sort of fed via Roslyn right. um, and and specifically through like Adama sort of telling her what this is like he like he's the one who's telling her who Kane is right oh she's this you know she was young and was promoted over you know a lot of these commanders and she's tough but you know smart and you know all of this stuff about her you know he's the one who tells Rosalind, the implications of, well, you know, as an admiral, she outranks me. And so, of course, I follow her. And it's as simple as that, you know, that she's my superior and this and that and sort of, you know, how that military order really works. um, And and all of those sort of of things. Um, Well, and... And the, the, the thing of, oh, sometimes I forget the rules... Is it's true? It's not a lie, but it's also kind of masking the real issue, which is her discomfort with the rules. <laughs> you know, like it's not just sure. that. Oh, I forgot sure. the rules. It's that Rosalind has to come to terms with the unsettling notion that here's this new person who's just turned up, who mm. I'm now supposed to deal with primarily instead of 
Adama. Um, and I think, again, we're with Rosalind there. Like, Adama can talk about how this is perfectly normal in a military setting, but that doesn't mean that as an audience, we're not wary of that idea, you know, of like, all right, mm -hmm. who is this person? And, you know, should we feel comfortable? Should we trust her or not? Um, sure. And well, and I think it extends to, I want to bring up another idea, which I think yeah, yeah. we can talk to like on a specific level, but I think it applies to all of the Pegasus crew to a certain extent, which is um, for me, I always like uh, think of them as like the bizarro Battlestar Galactica. Like, there's this kind of, which I admit, I understand more from Seinfeld than from Superman. So I acknowledge that. So if there are Superman people out there, sure. you can correct me on whatever nuances I get wrong about how the bizarro world works. But it's that thing of same but different. And there's a kind of uncanny valley to it of like, especially the scene where it's like the landing party and they're all the, the raptor doors open and they're stepping out one by one. And it's like, you know bizarro starbuck and bizarro like you have like these right, right pegasus counterpoints to all and they pretty much all have them like most of the main oh, characters yeah. have like this, right you have the cag you have right the, yeah. right there's yeah. like there's a chief of the deck there's a kind of gata guy the XO, you know, there, yeah. yeah there's another gruff older xo type you know there's all <laughs> these like characters that are like okay it's these weird twins but there's something off like I think I think that's what gives me at least the unsettled feeling of like this should sure. feel familiar and I recognize it but I don't know anything about these people and I don't know if I want to and there's something maybe because it's that mirror reflection where things are kind of inverted or they're not you know there there's there's something kind of missing I don't know what but it gives you this kind of unsettled creepy kind of I think even before the relationships start dissolving and mm. and things start to go bad, I think that's what gives you that unsettled feeling, even in the beginning. Um, even when this should be all happiness and reunion and everything, it's still like you're like, well, I don't know, like, don't know about these people. And that's and you're right that it's really only Rosalind initially who, you know, picks up on that. Um, and I guess yeah, that's well, as the civilian character, she's well, enough I, outside of the system to view it with that kind of reticence. So, and, and so I think, I think part of the bizarroness of it, if I can use that term, and I, I don't know anything about bizarro world from uh, Superman either. Only so, Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> I'm with you there, but. I think part of the bizarreness of it is in talking about the whole landing party and yeah, like the stepping out and they sort of, they form like a protective perimeter right before like, which like maybe that's what they're supposed to do. Like maybe that's military protocol. Sure. So I think part of the bizarreness of it is that we haven't been as subject to military protocol right. as maybe we should have been like, right. like you have Adama, Remember, going way back to the very beginning, the Galactica was about to be decommissioned. Right. Obama was about to retire. Like, like this is not necessarily someone who is like 
in the prime of his military career per se not to say that he doesn't yeah. know the protocols or follow them in a certain way to or, a certain you, extent yeah yeah like like you can sort of say it with an obi-wan kenobi voice you know from a certain point of view <laughs> and you know that there's you know there's a sense there that after 40 odd years of service adama maybe has a slightly different interpretation of the protocols than an a young up and coming smart but tough mm-hmm. military admiral mm-hmm. like Kane would. Right. And so she is clearly a by the book person. Mm-hmm. Adama's like a mostly by the book person, but well, you know, maybe ease right. up here and there or right. you know He'll whatever. Interpret and, the book creatively at times. Yeah. And but I think part of the bizarreness too is is that sentence that Kane utters right before all the Tyrion begins of welcome back to the colonial fleet right. and the bizarreness there of it is like well wait a minute but we're the colonial we're the fleet. fleet who are you talking you're, to yeah. you're you're the one yeah. who has returned to us right and and that's us as viewers right. as well it's like wait right. a minute no 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 this is our story right not your story but Kane to her right. it's totally her story and it's only natural that right. it's her story right. and anyone she runs into is coming into her story right not not her coming into their story and there's and, a way and technically she's right in the sense that she's the highest ranking therefore where she goes that's where the fleet is you know like sure. and that's but again only technically is that true like right. she's coming in with one battle star to join another battle star and however many dozen civilians. Yeah, like 40 other so ships there's with like 50,000 people total. You it's know? like, okay, by the letter of the law, yes, technically you're right. But by any common sense, it you would think it would be the other way. But yeah, that's part of our ownership of the story that it's like, it's offensive when she says that, you know? <laughs> um, well, and, then, at least, and a little... At least jarring. Yeah. Like, at le- like I and that's the thing, like for, I and I think it's jarring to us, and like to Rosalind, right? But like based on the cheers, right? Not like to that seems the, to be how all the, the other military right. personnel, at least in the moment, like right. like I think throughout the episode, and maybe we should start talking about the rest of the episode twenty minutes into it, like like I think, you know, throughout the episode we sort of get some of the addition, you know, some of the ways that that does that that the ultimate implications of that does jar the other people but right. like at least in that moment it's like you know it's cheers and yeah. whatever and and i think you're right that like like in that sense at least Rosalind is somewhat skeptical insofar as you know she feels like it like she says i'm so glad you found us mm. but it's kind of it's kind of the other way around, right? Yeah. Like, like you're getting that sense of like, maybe she's not being sarcastic about it, but there, there might be a slight twinge of irony in the statement mm-hmm. of like, yeah, but really we kind of found you like, okay, maybe you jumped into our rain division, but like, right. you're rejoining we're, our we're, we're, community. We're the ones. Yeah. yeah. Doing whatever. And, um, and it was sort of by accident. We find out anyway, that, that they were where they are. 
right. the, the Pegasus, I mean. Right. Um, and, I mean, there's, a, so, okay, so, like, talking about how the Pegasus find them. So, you like, you get this conversation with Rosalind and Obama and um, Kane, and Kane sort of tells them about what happened. They were about to go into a three-month overhaul, and all their systems were mm -hmm. shut down, and so when the Cylons attacked, um, it did damage the ship, but it didn't completely disable it. And because their systems were down, like they weren't infected with the virus. And so they were able to boot up and escape and did a blind jump. And since then, apparently they've been sort of following the Cylons and harassing them. Mm -hmm. Now, what reinforces the idea that this is our story and not her story is that we find out ultimately that oh the Cylons weren't just going to like random worlds and you know looking for uh you know things to um you know like like raw materials and that kind of thing I mean they were doing that mm -hmm. but what we find out is like that their pattern was all you know surrounding sort of the what the Galactica was doing right and Kane figures this out based on the logs, right? It's like, right. oh, tracing back all this stuff, it's clear now that our movements were following the Cylon movements, which were following your movements. Right. Right. And so this reinforces the idea that, oh, wait a minute, it's not actually Kane's story. Because all along, while, you know, despite the fact that Kane might have thought that she was just going around harassing the Cylons wherever they went, the Cylons themselves were following, you know, the Galactica. So that means that ultimately she was following the Galactica too. And so that right. she was in the trail or the wake of the Galactica all along. And and right. the rest of the fleet, which, you know, was also trailing Galactica. So, so there is this sense where, like, there's almost a sort of, not that Kane sees it that way, mm -hmm. but, like, for, right. for us as viewers and, and maybe for even Adama, there is this sort of justification that like we, you know, we as the viewers and, and we as the Galactica and crew are the ones that are really driving the story mm -hmm. here. And, and Kane's sort of the tag along. Right. Um, again, not that that's how Kane sees it, but, right. but I do think that's sort of the, the part of the implication of, you know, finding that information out. Sure, um, sure. Well, and I don't want to also gloss over, like, again, it's still in that first section when you're still, things are happy and, and you know, they're on an upward trend, but you still, again, are getting hints of the darkness because you mentioned, um, you know, for as much as she's clearly by the rule book and stricter you know in a way like not even comparable to how Adama is um that is sort of undercut by these hints of more kind of I guess reckless or even like dangerous behavior because you mentioned like the blind jump like and like think of how much energy the Galactica have gone into not making a blind jump like you know sure. how much time they've spent yeah. thinking about plotting jumps executing them deliberately not jumping when they don't know where they're going, all this stuff. And that, yeah. And, and, and sharing jump information with the right. rest of the, right. 
fleet and that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And not to say that that wasn't, I mean, it got her ship away. It clearly paid off, but there's still, there's a recklessness there. Like just the way she kind of, when Rosalind says like, where jump to where? And she's like, wherever, anywhere, nowhere. It's like, there's almost like a nihilistic thing there of just, I'm just jumping over that cliff and hoping that it'll work out. And it did. But still, there's a kind of element of wildness there that I don't think Adama is that, you know, uh, you know, there's a good decisions or bad decisions. Adama certainly thinks carefully about his decisions and, and you know, makes them deliberately, um, whether or not we always agree with them. Whereas, like, she kind yeah. of, there's an instinctiveness there, um, which, again... I think also comes up when you start to hear these rumors of like, you know, Fisk's story about how she'll shoot her officers if they disobey her commands. And it's like, you're not quite sure whether to believe him or not, but like the seed's been planted and the possibility's there and you can't say for sure that he's lying, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think, I think the, like, Adama calls it brave, but, like, like, the, the fact that Kane sort of does a blind jump. Yeah. Adama calls it brave or gutsy or whatever, but, like, it's also kind of the only choice. Sure. I mean, it's not the only, like, you could have just stayed and, like, died. Right. You know what I mean? But So, like, like, the idea of, like, oh, you could have jumped into a star or something is true. But if you don't jump, like, like there's pretty much guarantee that you're not going to make it. So, so in that respect too, like, I don't, I don't know that I consider it quite as reckless maybe as all that. Um, Insofar, like, it's not like, it's like, and so even comparing like to the conversation that Starbuck and, Adama and Rosalind have at the very beginning, like you almost get the sense that Adama's calling that reckless because they've jumped the red line and there's, you know, navigational creep and Mm. all of this kind of thing going on that, that makes it potentially much more dangerous and, and possibly ineffectual to even try to go back to Caprica because Mm -hmm. they simply won't be able to find it. Um, and and it could take them not just, you know, the 200 jumps that Starbucks asserts, but potentially many more. We don't even know how many more. Like, seems like there's a potential for many, many more, mm-hmm. you know, um, orders of magnitude more, perhaps. So, I, yeah, I, do, I don't know that we need to dwell on that, but that's just sort of my assessment of that thing. So, anyway. Yeah. Wh- we kind of glossed over like and I mean I don't mean glossed over in in a bad sense but like we kind of skipped a little bit past some of the initial cooperation stuff that kind of coincides with all of the cheering and you know acceptance of like or the feeling of being accepted now into like a larger fleet even Mm -hmm. though it's not really a larger fleet it's Mm -hmm. just like one ship that has a smaller crew than they do but 
they apparently had many more supplies. Right. And well, and so, the technology like, seems superior. Like, even just the shots you get of how yeah. glossy and high-tech and new it is. Like, right. you realize, oh, <laughs> this is what a real battle star looks like. I mean, not this old and, museum and we've been get, flying around in. Right. And you get, like, the illusion of that, right? So you get, like, Fisk sort of saying, you know, how old and beat up the Galactica is and how he surprised the Cylons didn't kick their butts. Right. Which and you get, like... Tie, of course. You get, like, Baltar sort of, you know, like, complimenting Fisk later on, like, oh, you know, very nice ship you have here kind yeah. of thing. And it's just like, uh, okay, you know, whatever. Um, you get, so, but you get, like, I mean, remember, it's just the last episode is where we have Tyrrell uh, realizing that, like, they don't have enough spare parts to, like, keep all of their Vipers Mm -hmm. in good working order mm -hmm. and okay granted like he's able to go and make this new ship and it's kind of a passion project and gets people you know behind him and everything and that's great and all but you get the sense like there's not another one like in him or in the amount of material that they have mm -hmm. like like this was sort of a one-time thing and it was right. great for morale but but it's not gonna like replace their viper fleet anytime right. soon right and so just the fact that, like, like they get, like, one little cart of, like, spare parts and Callie's, like, drooling, you know? Like, right. she's like, oh, my gosh, like, look at all this stuff that we're getting. And it's, like, it's, like, literally, like, one little cart of, like, some extra stuff right. that, right. you know, Pegasus had on hand. But, like, Pegasus had it on hand. It's mm -hmm. extra. It's not something that they need. And so they're able to give it to them. Um, you get, like, uh, uh, Gaeta. Mm -hmm. And whatever his counterparts, Bizarro Gata, yeah, yeah, Bizarro Gata, coming over with you know software updates and navigational updates, navigational updates. Oh, wait a minute, this might fix the problem mm. of you know Starbuck not being able to plot the courses back to Caprica right. appropriately, and right. Right. you know um, possibly some porn mixed in with the library. Why not? You know, hey, well, could, and again, just like it's answering. The chief's shortage from the previous episode. It's like, hey, we just wiped our hard drive. Look, you guys showed up because they have the whole history of like, they have like the Library of Congress in their yeah. thing of like, here's the history of everything of our recorded civilization because you guys had to wipe your hard drive, didn't you? Right. Um, so not right. only the software, but all of the data that they lost in the right. kind of, yeah. Everything from the articles of whatever, you know, right. to, you know, to, Porn rags, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Debbie does Sagittarius or whatever, like Sagittarion. And, you know, so like. <laughs> uh, wow. Sorry, that was bad. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, moving on. Like you, you get these sort of. Right. You get some camaraderie. And, and I feel like what, what I like about that is that like, like these are the tactical guys right this is Gaeta I mean yes he's CIC so they're sort of a prestige or whatever in there but he's certainly not high man on the totem pole because right. that's Adama but like you know he's the guy who gets things done like mm -hmm. he's you know he's the lieutenant he's he's the small he, small fish in a small pond so to speak like right. you know but he he's the one who's right you know Making running that yeah. running the helm when the big dogs are away and you, you know he can he can you know sit down and do some hand coding and you know all of this stuff and he's 
gotten under the dashboards and done some of the dirty work and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, and, and like, there seems to be a good sort of camaraderie between him and Bizarro Gata. And, you know, the same thing with like, you know, the, the Tyrell and the deck crew and they're, you know, they're happy, you know, like he, he, he say, Oh, I'm starting to like this Pegasus, you know, more and more because of the stuff they're giving him and sharing. And even when like Laird comes over, who's sort of his counterpart, Right. Um, like he's a nice guy, like, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, he's yeah. a nice guy and he might be like, he's a little maybe socially awkward, right. you know, but like as aeronautics in the matter engineers of engineers, yeah. <laughs> he, but like, but like he's, you know, he comes over and he's nice. He strikes up conversation. He sort of compliments if maybe in a, a sort of backhanded way, the, the ship that, you know, Tyrrell built and, you know, offer some suggestions, but not like apparently in a mean way, like, you know, in, in a way that helps improve the fuel efficiency and, and, and sort of complements, you know, the use of this like old design and like, Oh, I didn't thought these made anymore, but like picks up that, like, it's not just like, Oh, you know, this is crap, but like, Oh, this is actually a good use for them kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. and, and even when like, Laird later lets it be known that he's, you know, the frackwit who's going to be taking over Tyrrell's deck. Yeah. Like, Tyrrell sort of realizes his gaffe and, and says, okay, well, you know, offices this way and sort of willingly, even even though, like, Laird is a, a actually, like, a civilian who was sort of drafted into service, and we'll talk about that maybe mm-hmm. in, uh, another area but uh you know the fact that like he just sort of willingly is like okay well this is this is the state of things to come and actually Laird's kind of a nice guy and he kind of right. works through that pretty quickly like right there doesn't seem to be any like residual tension there mm-hmm. um right they're not all of, they're not all menacing and sort of i mean i like, wouldn't say you know the pegasus crew is like you know, evil, but like, they're not even all like, like unlikable, you know, there's definitely an initial, like, you know, camaraderie, like you said, and like, you know, initial happiness to sort of be working together, or at least give each other the benefit of the doubt and say, all right, it kind of sucks that you're taking over my job, but it's not exactly your fault. So we'll be sort of civil about it. You know, there's not that initial bad blood. And I mean, I think part of it comes from too, like, like they call themselves knuckle draggers, or like it's like from one knuckle dragger to another. Like it's sort of like, you know, of the, you know, the right. deck crew it probably isn't the most well respected sure. of the ship of any of any ship. Right. And so, like, there's sort of that like working man. We feel kinship with people, you know, yeah. like yeah. that that they have with each other that right. we don't see among the different Viper pilots of, you know, of right. each right. ship. A much they, more competitive crowd. Yeah, yeah, much more alpha dog, much more right. competitive, much more, you know, even, even like, like they're competitive about the fact of how competitive they are. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. like, you know, you get Starbucks sort of mocking them for being too competitive and sort of implying that they're better for not being as competitive. Right. Like I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm competitive and, in a way that I'm better than you, but yeah. I don't brag about it, which makes me I'm, even better. <laughs> I'm morally superior to you because I'm not 
showing how competitive I am how or something, something I like am. that. Yeah. 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 And so like, right. So, so yeah. So sort of among those people and then, and then you get like, again, sort of maybe a, not a microcosm, uh, I, I'm not sure, like a like an analogy, you know, of Cain and Adama to you know the two tags of I I don't I can't I don't know the Pegasus tag's name, but like um. between him and Apollo, like you have like a similar dynamic there of like this very you know ultra uh, uh, strict by the book, you know what I say goes mm-hmm. sort of attitude, and not that Lee doesn't necessarily have that because we've certainly seen moments of it but lee's also as we've seen more willing to sort of break the rules and Mm -hmm. well and not like slightly more willing but like oh i'll put a gun to ty's head you know and basically incite mutiny right um willing to break the rules but but based in principle like right like he's not and maybe that's the difference that we didn't sort of explicitly state before is that like you get sort of the blind allegiance to protocol and military form with Kane and her people mm-hmm. where, you know, with Lee, well, with the Adamas in general and the, you know, well, the Adamas specifically and, and the Galactica in general, you get more of a willingness to follow one's moral conviction, huh. even if that means breaking the sort of military protocol and maybe that's sort of the summary way of stating what this episode i think shows as the distinction between you know galactica and bizarro galactica right that bizarro galactica is a sort of kafka-esque uh you know allegiance to the bureaucracy and rules of Mm -hmm. military power whereas galactica has more of maybe a moral and uh, ethical sensibility that uses military command as a guide, you know, but then sort of applies it through a filter of society and right. civilian thinking and all of that. Um, which is, which becomes a nice, I think then Rosalind and the civilian fleet become a nice kind of, uh, embodiment of that like okay really what is if you're just looking at them from the outside what's the difference between the pegasus and the galactica pegasus doesn't have a civilian fleet so it's that military you know code divorced Mm -hmm. from civilian morality kind of you know like it's it's all by the letter and there's no spirit to it there's no human interpretation and compassion element it's just you know the 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 letter of the iron law from the top down um and the fact that they don't have civilians any civilians they had it's implied got absorbed into the military you know laird Mm. and whoever else were civilians but they've been drafted or conscripted or whatever and you know eaten up and made into part of the machine whereas galactica allows a civilian presence and even agency outside of its even if that relationship is fraught it still acknowledges that there's 
a re a, there should be respectful dialogue, even if we don't always, you know, achieve it. Mm. Which, sure. and again, too, I think that, you know, those philosophies trickle down from above, you know, there's, that's Kane's personality and Adama's personality sort of contrasted and that filters down to their subordinates. Um, yeah. Of how well, they're allowed to behave, how, what they can get away with, what kind of example is being set for them. Cause Adama hates it when people break his rules, but then he breaks the rules too, you know? So there's, you know, like any good, parent he's like setting an example for them whether he realizes that or not i think yeah yeah no certainly and i mean kane calls him out on that very thing right that like hey remember that time when you just sort of dissolved the tribunal because you didn't like, like it the results and i like what she's <laughs> yeah, like you didn't like because she's like don't even get me started on tie <laughs> you know like right we'd be here right. all day and and she literally lists off like everyone we like, right? Yeah. Like Starbuck and Lee and Hilo, right? And, right. You know, Tyrrell and like right. like all these people who were like, no, no, like, but they're following their convictions and what? And and I'm that's not to say their convictions are always necessarily right. Like, right. I, I mean, I, I think, don't. I don't want to imply that like every time they break military protocol, it's necessarily a good thing either. It's, what, what complicates it, it is like, we've had those same discussions about those same people when we were like, oh, right. so-and-so did this stupid thing and he broke this rule and he's acting wrongly and all that. Like, but again, it's like, okay, nobody can insult your battle star except for you. It's like, we've had those same discussions and yet we still feel protective of our crew and our heroes, even when they behave wrongly, you know? Um, it's still, it's like, well, you don't get to come in here and judge their actions and all that. You know, you feel that kind of bristling thing, even if she's pointing out the exact same stuff that we've sort of pointed out ourselves before. Right. Um, so I, like, so we've mentioned like, the new, the Pegasus keg, and the, he's not really a new keg, right? He's presumably been keg of the Pegasus for a while. Right. But the, the Pegasus keg and Lee, and we get, like, the stuff between Starbuck and the Viper pilots. And, mm -hmm. and like you said, like, these are all, like, a lot of these are, you know, clashes of personality that are just sort of, like, you know, like, reiterations of their individual commanding officers' mm -hmm. personalities. Um Though again, not not always. Like Laird and Tyrrell get along, you know, Gaeta and right. his counterpart get along. Um but then you know, you have sort of these tensions building and you get like like Kane basically decides to mix it up even more. Like you already get some of these like clashes between the different personnel, but they're different personnel. Like the Viper pilots go back to their own ships and, you know, Laird is just sort of visiting for a while. But then, like, Kane's like, oh, okay, well, you've had some problems, Adama, so I'm going to, like, make some shifts in personnel, presumably to solve these problems. Like, it, I don't feel like her justification is ever really clear. Maybe it doesn't need to be because she's commanding officer and so she can do whatever the heck she wants. But, like... Yeah, it's that's the idea I get. Is like chief 
is not a competent leader. So we're, we're demoting him. We're going to put someone else in charge of his department. And Lee and Kara are, you know, insubordinate. They're troublemakers. So I'm going to bring them over here where I can keep an eye on them. Right, and I'll right. whip them into shape, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's the implication. Yeah. And, and so you get some of these transfers. And, like, it's not just Laird, right? Like, there's some other deckhands who go to the Galactica. Mm. Um, and this just exacerbates things, right? Like, this is, like the cancer metastasizing basically like like you get like now you have these deckhands who start talking about like sharon who was someone who was very familiar in you know not just in the deck but as like like everyone you know remember way back in the beginning when we saw sort of like kelly's knowing looks whenever Mm -hmm. you know boomer came around and and there were sort of the the over-the-top excuses and fights between them and everyone kind of knew what was going on but like the deckhands don't know about that happening right like people seem to know about Hilo right and Sharon and like I don't like I'm not clear if the deckhands know that Hilo was one I mean he certainly gets angry enough at him that like Mm-hmm. Maybe they sense something and are kind of begging him on a bit, but they don't know necessarily that Tyrol was also involved. And uh, you get like these—I don't—I don't know what the right way to say it is. Like the the you know uh, lack lack of propriety, lack of knowing when to shut your mouth. <laughs> you know, general and, gross behavior. Yeah, yeah, and. Which is interesting because, like, I mean, Hilo is an officer. Tyrrell is the chief. Well, I mean, I assume he still retains his title. You know, just that, like, Laird is right, now sure. above him. Right. Like, but nobody, like, puts a stop to, like, their, nobody, like, orders them to shut up. Right. Basically. Right. But it does set them going down. Sort of on the other side, you have Lee and Starbuck. Now, Lee, I mean, Lee does kind of know when to shut his mouth in a way that Starbuck doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know? And she gets into trouble with the new CAG by telling him how stupid his plan is. And she's right, but it's it's kind of that thing of where you're right, but the way in which you're right is wrong, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so um, certainly doesn't win any points with the new CAG, gets sort of banned on the mission, and Lee gets Mm -hmm. put into her place Mm -hmm. um so you have like these things again like it's it's like new irritants just kind of like stirring up more problems Mm -hmm. and it it comes to a head when kilo and tyrell realize that like sharon's about to be interrogated in a very rough fashion right by this lieutenant thorn they go racing off to yeah. you know the the um to the brig run in you know pull you, you know uh, is it it Tyrrell's the one who pulls thorn off of of uh Sharon yeah throws him throws him against the bulkhead happens to hit like a bolt and that kills him right uh you know Hilo starts fighting one of the guards but Unfortunately, there's another guard there with the gun and, and right. they're, you know, 
they put a stop to, um, right. you know, the attack. But, uh, you know, this this is sort of the the moment of, you know, where everything sort of comes to a head. So now we're, we're you know, this isn't just like mixing personalities, but we actually, we have, we have a casualty. We've got, you know, now two people under arrest and get sent to the Pegasus for... Right. Court martial. Right. Well, and so a couple things like I think it's shown from all the the initial unification that the problem isn't just mixing personalities. You know that maybe a couple, you know, loose cannons aside, mostly the the crews are happy to see each other and happy to try to mix and work together. It's like this. All right, you're these two competing philosophies are, you know, uh, not going to mix, you know, like you're going to have a conflict between, um, you know, do you, do you follow Kane's rule or do you follow Adama's and they are not compatible. Um, and actually one of the most interesting moments for me is, before and you're saying like the the deckhands being like you know gross about uh you know how they treat the Cylon prisoners and stuff it's like you know that makes me think of like you know what they call like intersectionality because you have Mm. Callie being disgusted by it and telling them to shut up and walking out and it's interesting that it's Callie because Callie is no friend to Cylons you know like Callie like straight up shot <laughs> right. her and killed her. So right. it's like Callie is the one who has had the most personal and violent, you know, rejection of Sai. Like she couldn't even stand having her on the ship. She had to like, you know, get rid of her. Um, and yet even she, because it's like, you know, and she's not offended because she's a Cylon, because she feels bad for silence. She's offended as, you know, a woman and as a human being, you know. So there's this kind of weird moment where suddenly Callie is defensive of the Cylon, Sharon, who's in the brig, which is like a strange thing. But when you're confronted with the way that the Pegasus crew treats the Cylons, then suddenly the perspective like shifts. So it's like, it's just weird that it's like Callie and that, you know, is kind of shown to be the one who's, you know, the most sort of, you know, other than Hilo maybe is the most sort of offended by that. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, okay. So we've had like conflicts with Cylons, obviously we've had battles with them. We've even had, you know, interrogation and even torture of them before. But, like, still, there's a difference between basically Adama's philosophy of how you treat, what is humane treatment of the enemy, and you have Kane's philosophy of what is, you know, humane treatment of the enemy. Um, Well, and not even recognizing the enemy as human anyway, so it doesn't even... It doesn't even matter. Sure. It's, it's, and, and there's all sorts of like debates there too, right? Like, I mean, this is like, we get the whole, does torture even work debate kind mm-hmm. of thing here. And you get, you get like Baltar saying like, well, 
Baltar is like arguing for humane treatment, but on like sort of not non-humane principles. Like he's he's arg he, his argument, whether he believes it or not. And I guess he right. he which I don't you, think you, he does really. I think it's a yeah. Like, but anyway, go I, ahead. I, I I think he he's sort of arguing the utilitarian aspect right. of it, like right. saying like, well, I've what I found to be effective mm -hmm. is right. pretending that they're human and treating them with dignity, so to speak, as if right. they were actually human. And oh, isn't this machine amazing? It acts with a psychological response as though it were human mm -hmm. and like that kind of thing. Like now if, if you ask me and, and I think you would agree that like he probably thinks of Cylons as human at this point, like, right. or at least as just as intelligent and with the same, you know, right. Sort of, you know, sense of, uh, 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 consciousness and, and all of that, that humans have. Um, you right, know, certainly right. As, he, as as sentient beings, and so, you know, I don't like I don't necessarily think that he believes right. that, but like at the same time, right, he's trying to get he, through to speak in a language that Kane will understand. Right, like, and we've seen that he's he's adaptable to his audience. Like mm -hmm. he's from the very beginning, he's he, a good politician. Yeah, he's good at. Yeah, figuring out what it is they want to hear and then giving them that. So for Kane, you know, like she even says, like, I don't like her comfort isn't doesn't matter to me. I couldn't care less about whether she eats or whatever. And so he appeals to that that side of her of like, oh, well, you know, is it a fact? Now, of course, in, in the real world, that's the sort, same sort of maybe not in the same exact terms, but that's the sort of debates that are had about, you know, like. Abu Ghraib and, mm -hmm. and, you know, Guantanamo and prisons like that, where it's like, is it, is it even, is waterboarding or, or worse forms of torture even effective? Like, is the information that you can even get from them good? And it's like, well, okay, we can have that discussion. And maybe, maybe on a utilitarian level, there is or isn't an answer. I don't even know if it's possible to get an answer, but maybe there is an answer on that level. But then that ignores, Regardless of whether it's good information, right. should you even be doing it? Right, to it ignores the person, ethical to someone implications of it. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, we still we have those sorts of debates, even even with people who are human, and we know they're human, and that they're not robots. Like, right, right. like we have those sort of debates. So I feel like you know we can get into you know some of that kind of stuff here, but. Um, Right, but, but there's yeah, also like that sense of if you're dealing, if you're trying to convince, if you on ethical grounds are trying to convince people who don't see an ethical problem, do you adopt the language of utilitarianism to say, well, if compassion doesn't convince you, then maybe right. science will. And say, well, not only is it inhumane, but it's ineffective as well. So you might as well give up. And, yeah. you know, you've taken a utilitarian route to get to the, you know, the the, and, the answer that you want, which is I think what and, Baltar tries to do, and that's also kind of the way that like like lawyers when they, you know, when there's like a lawsuit, that's like the way they set up their arguments, right? It's like, well, such and such person, 
didn't violate the law because, you know, of this reason. And even if they did violate the law because of that reason, they didn't violate it because of this reason. And even if they did violate it because of that reason, there were extenuating circumstances or mitigating circumstances that, you know, okay, maybe technically they violated the law, but because of these mitigating circumstances, they should be excused from this particular law. And even if those mitigating circumstances aren't enough to excuse them from the law, then it shouldn't matter anyway because the law is unconstitutional, and here's why the law is unconstitutional. Right. And if it's not unconstitutional for that reason, then it it's should un be. unconstitutional yeah. for this reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, like it's just like they build on these, like, it's like they build their case out to, like, like, okay, if, you know, there's this reason that we're presenting, but then even if that reason turns out to actually be inaccurate, there's, like, these ten other reasons, you know, sort of cascading as to, you know, why they should or should not be applicable in this particular case. Mm. Um, and and that seems to be the way that Baltar goes, mm -hmm. you know, with with his sort of rationality here. Um, all right, so... Which is an interesting... I, I don't think it's the first time we've seen, you know, humanity, and he's never been just a straight, pure, you know, villain or anything, but, like, Baltar set up as this, you know... In, intensely passionate fighter for Cylon rights, you know, in the, in the Pegasus sure. and taking the best route he can figure to get her humane treatment, you know, and absolutely in his speech at the end, he does seem to say like, he does, I think, make the argument that for him, you know, they are basically human, um, at least in his perspective of them, you know, or, or, this particular model anyway sure who looks just like someone he loves right and who he has not stopped thinking about right right and, and that's literally first, you know that that be that becomes a question of is this like would we extend this to all cylons or is it because it's this particular one sure and and you know sort of what are the implications there but because he doesn't seem to treat sharon Sure. In that same way. Sure. I mean, he doesn't, he does sort of say, oh, well, what I, you know, what I found is treating her as if she's, but like, even at, like, it's, in a sense, it's almost exactly the opposite. Because even as he's saying, like, I've found that treating this Cylon, you know, as though she were human, you know, the as though she were the human that she pretends to be, like, literally, as Sharon Sidney, they're saying, like, Oh, so you're going to pretend I can't hear you or talk right mm -hmm. now? Like, like she's literally saying that as he's totally ignoring her and saying how he's treating her like she's human. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait a minute. Like, there's a really weird disconnect going on here. Again, though, like, is this because that's the way he really thinks? Or is this because this he's pre he's presenting himself to yeah. Kane as someone who doesn't actually right. think that Cylons are human, but want but you know right. says that he pretends that he does so that he can get information right what, right he's know. playing to his audience again yeah right um so all of that said we've got we've got now you know ultimately baltar is incrementally successful in at least getting Prisoner Six, mm. we, we haven't gotten her name yet. Mm -hmm. uh, although I think we do eventually get her name. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. But 
um, we'll call her Prisoner Six. We she he gets her to eat something, which shows that she at least has, like like she seems to overcome whatever trauma she's you know been subjected to and is now able to to have some sort of active will to sustain herself Mm -hmm. uh which is like like this is like the great psychological battle one right like like if if she's willing to help herself even that little bit then Mm -hmm. like there's hope you know for her recovery kind of thing um we've got sharon who has now been traumatized not maybe to the same level but she's been violated she's been attacked Mm -hmm. and we have lieutenant thorne dead and Hilo and Tyrrell in court martial. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Lee off on his mission, and we've got Starbuck off on her secret mission mm-hmm. in the Blackbird. Lee tells her when she's sort of taken off of her, uh, uh, which okay. So here's maybe a tiny flaw in what's in, in this plan is Starbuck somehow gets back to the Galactica. Right. They they kind of skip over the mechanics of how right. she goes like, about that. Yeah. Like, like after we've got Kane being such a hard ass about everyone being sort of in their proper places and her, like you would think that it would be flagged that Star, Starbuck has left the Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Right. But somehow she manages to do that and get in the black. She's very stealthy, very sneaky, sir. Uh, thinking of the Mr. Deeds with, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so like she manages to get in there and goes off on her own. So you've got basically Hilo and Tyrrell on their own. We don't, like there seem, there seems to be implied that there are more transfers than just Starbuck and Lee. But we don't know like who, like, I mean, there's thousands of personnel on each ship. So like, we don't know who else may have may not have been transferred but they're basically on their own Mm -hmm. adama hears not just about the court martial he tries he argues to like have them you know the trial take place on his own ship Mm -hmm. kane kane sat down he's thinking like okay there's actually going to be a trial turns out to be sort of a kangaroo Mm. court where kane presides as you know superior officer in a detached vessel during a military time blah 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 right so she gets to be and, judge jury and executioner basically as like under the rules of war you know if you're yeah. treason i can you know and she it's, can it's do all that herself not it's not explicitly brought up again but adama has got to be thinking about the fact that ty told him this story about you know her about kane's old exo who she apparently executed you know uh, immediately right in right. front of the crew right. when he when he simply refused an order. Right. Um, and so he does, like, this is his, okay, I'm not going to be your whipping boy anymore mm-hmm. moment, <laughs> in that he orders a strike team to be put together, sends the uh, Vipers out, and, like, turns to Callie, who's like, just happens to be right by his side and says, we have work to do. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure what, what he and Callie have worked together to do, but like, for some reason, (laughs) like she's the one who's there and it's just like, all right. Well, she's come to advocate for Tiro, right? Like she's coming to him to. But I mean, like, 
like practically, like what is she going to do in this situation? Sure, like, I guess go get the deck crew at, ready. Like, I would imagine she goes to pass the word to say, "Gear up." Yeah. There's a showdown coming. Um, and so, so right. So you've got all of these people, sort of moving parts, you know, coming together. You have Admiral Kane uh, refusing. You, you know, Adama calls her up and is like, "I'm I'm going to get my men. Please have them ready." She's like, "You're on crack, or you're on magic," as Willow <laughs> might say, and. She then, of course, sends out her Vipers to meet the oncoming strike team mm -hmm. and uh, to be continued. To be continued. So, like, very, yeah. very high tension. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that particular to be continued. Mm -hmm. It's very annoying to me. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't going to be all resolved in this episode. Sure. I should have seen it coming. I just, you know, you, it's that thing of, like, you know when the Vipers are getting launched and you're like, there's, like, 45 seconds left in the episode, right, and you're right. like, dang it, yeah, man, come on, really? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Song. Well, luckily, we don't have to wait three months before talking about the no. next That's true, because this it. was the, the end of, this was like the midpoint of the season, yeah. and it was like the first season that they started doing that, right? Like, they, I don't, did they do that in the first season where they No, I think it was just a run of however... 11 yeah, or like 12, 12 episodes or, 13, or whatever it was yeah. this is so now it's they've uh expanded to 20 i think so it's 10 and then we get a break and then um right and then 10 more right um so yeah so uh in three months from now we'll be back everyone with the, <laughs> no um no we'll of course talk about it next week um along with some angel but yeah i mean i know i kind of ran through a lot of stuff there i don't want to Rush, if you have anything more to say about uh, all of that. No, I think that kind of covers everything. I mean, I kind of, with you, thought this was going to be tough to talk about just because uh, every character has pretty much something to do. And on top of that, we watched the extended episode, so it's a bit longer than a normal episode. Sure, sure. But actually, I think, I think we kind of covered it because I kind of realized in going through it, there really are... There are subplots to the main plot, but there's nothing that is unassociated with the main plot. Like everything is just related to this meeting right. between the two, you know, crews of the battle stars. There's no, there's no breaking off to do like something on another topic at all. So um, it's actually pretty straightforward, I think. Yeah. Um, Although I do, I do really find it interesting that again, like when you get down to like, the level of like the technical crew mm. that there's like, that's not where like the tension is. It's, it's sort of in the high profile stuff, right? Like, right. okay. Yeah. You get, you get the deckhands being kind of jerks and stuff, but like, right. but like Tyrrell and Laird, right. You know, Gaeta and his, right. you know, Bizarro Gaeta, like right. there, there's just like, like they're all like, okay, we've got stuff to do. We want to help each other out. Yep. You scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. And, and like, and, 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 the sort of like maybe the nerdiness even of it of right. like the the, right. the being we have a common in, like, interest like they're, here. yeah yeah they're yeah. interested in in the bits and pieces and how things fit together you know more on the physical side on the deck maybe and more on the the computer and digital side and like the cic stuff but like right like there's definitely sort of that camaraderie mm -hmm. of like nerd you know geekiness uh between them that kind of i think 
helps maybe with a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, right. They have things in common and they're separate, but equal. Like there's that we are each up until Laird gets reassigned. There's a sense of, Oh, you're my counterpart over there. So we're not a threat to each other and therefore we can bond and share these shared things. Yeah. Whereas with Adama and Kane, there's immediately that sense of much as Adama says, it's not a big deal. There's an immediate sense of hierarchy and it's kind of a it's big kind deal. of yeah. secretly like not so secretly a big deal, um, which eventually trickles and filters down to the rest of the crew, that competitiveness. But um, but I think for the people who are higher up in the ranks, that jockeying for position and that power becomes the central like issue of like, you know, because it's like really like. Do you get the sense too to bring up? I thought we were done, but apparently I have something more to say. Do you get the sense too that like, apart from just being a stickler for the rules, and apart from the fact that yes, Hilo and and Tyrrell did kill a guy, um, I kind of get the sense that like, are those kind of secondary reasons? Like, really, that's why you're gonna kill them? Like, you're gonna oh, you're yeah. gonna try and sentence and execute them in a matter of hours because you're a stickler for the rules like i don't think so it's a power play it's a your guys screwed up and but she's gonna lay down that rule book hard to show adama who's boss that's the well, sense that i get like and and adama even seems to to think that something like that could happen because he warns lee and starbuck right they're setting you, know, you up he says yeah. he says i think they're gunning for you Right. And then Lee's like, I think they're gunning for all of us. But right. it's like, it's like Lee's like, okay, dude, you're maybe overstating it. But like, I do feel like this is like, in in Kane's eyes, like this is maybe like a happy coincidence. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think for a second she cares about the about Lieutenant Thorne per se. Exactly. Like, other than exactly. other than that, maybe he was effective at his job to some exactly. degree. Yeah. But like, or a vague sense of he's my crew, therefore you've offended me in the killing right. of him yeah more yeah. so i think i think she sees it as this is an opportunity yep. and maybe like maybe she just thought that like that opportunity would have come from lee or starbuck because mm -hmm. they're the troublemakers mm -hmm. but like like she also i mean she calls hilo out like as one of the you know he was the one fraternizing with right. the cylons right and and so like this is to her sort of a happy circumstance of okay it happened sooner than i was expecting but now i have my excuse right. to sort of lay down the law mm -hmm. and so now she's going to do that and maybe even like like it depends on how how far down that rabbit hole you want to go and and sort of putting implicate you know uh putting intentions on her you know does she is she intentionally trying to provoke adama knowing mm -hmm. his personality and knowing that he won't stand for that mm -hmm. sort of thing which then gives her an excuse to remove him and install her own person on the battlestar galactica altogether sure. so then it doesn't become like maybe maybe it's whatever respecting the fact that there are 50 other ships and whatever you know 
maybe this is just her way of like going about that as thinking that it'll it's it's the way that will cause the least amount of trouble mm-hmm. in the long run um i don't know because we don't like this just conjecture on my part but sure. like like i feel like this is just like she was going to find some excuse yeah. at some point yeah. and it's just that this is the first one that presents itself to her and it happens to be sort of perfect to do what she wants to do yeah yep Yep, that's the, you know, counterproductive as it is, because we're down to, what, 50,000 people, and uh, the last thing we need is to be shooting at each other's battle stars, but that's what they're going to do. So, um... Well, it's... So, yeah, uh, speaking of the number of people that are left, does the number, does, like, the official number at this point, because I did see, like, it was, like, 49605 or something, right? uh Or, like, that, that's flashes up on the screen in, mm-hmm. in the opening sequence there. Does that include the Pegasus? I think it Because they, I think they it show does. up in this episode. I think it go, goes up. It goes up and down. Like every so... I know it goes down. When no, I, I, I mean, I know in general it does. But, yeah. but does that number include the Pegasus? Or would, would it be like the next time because the Pegasus shows up, like they're added during the episode? Uh, so like... I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to pay attention I, and look. I don't remember. And that's like, I, it's not a huge deal. I, I was just curious if that. Right. What was it this time? We'll have to look at the next one. Does it go up? I want to say it was forty nine. I, I don't know why this sticks out of me, but forty nine six oh five is mm-hmm. my. Uh, rec- recollection. I'm looking it up. Looking it up. Or hey, forty nine six oh five. No, it does go up. It, it does Next go up because in the in no this time ah okay last episode it was forty seven eight fifty three so okay uh forty seven so they gained it goes the, up by like seven people by about seventeen hundred okay um so that must be seventeen fifty two that must be like the number of crew that there are in. Uh, Right. The Pegasus. Right. So, yeah. Oh, and next time it goes down by down one. by one. I just saw that Thorn gets subtracted. That must be, that must be Thorn. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So, so yeah. So we're so. Oh wow! I didn't realize it had gotten down to like forty seven hundred, but it's been at forty seven, eight or nine hundred since the second episode of season one. Okay. Thirty. So thirty-three. Oh, thirty-three. Was that when the because of the uh, the uh, loss like, of the the passenger liner, right? Yeah, that must be that one. Yep. Which right. they allude to in this episode. Right. Right. And when they're talking about the logs. Right. Um. So yeah, that was the last time they were above forty-nine thousand, and uh, so now we're back up. Not quite as much. That was forty-nine, nine ninety-eight. But we're uh, we're up at uh, forty nine six oh five now. So, right. Interesting. Okay. Well, anyway, so we don't really make note of that, but it hasn't really shifted that much. Like it's gone down little by little over the mm. last season and a half, but it has no like, major catastrophes. Not, not yeah. terribly. Like like it goes down by maybe like a hundred people over the course of twenty episodes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're 
up 1700 so okay um yeah anyway okay. interesting so on that note we will be back next week to talk about the next uh installment of the pegasus arc i'm not i i honestly don't remember how many episodes this goes i think we were talking a little bit beforehand. I don't think we talked about it during the episode uh, mm-hmm. of how I felt when I was watching it the first time that it seemed to get dragged out further. But mm-hmm. in rewatching it now, like clearly there's a big escalation right. <laughs> that goes on right in this first episode. Right. right. Um, and even, even though we watched the extended episode, which I don't think I've seen before, mm-hmm. like there's, you know, it still feels like, it's much quicker than I remember it being. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting to sort of see how many more episodes it, it continues to go here, but. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and so we're back to Angel again next week too. So we had two weeks of Buffy in a row. We're back to Angel. We've got another week of Buffy after that. And then two episodes of Angel back back. So we're, we're, we'll kind of, there's some back and forth there where we've got some paired up, Back to back, Angel, back to back, Buffy, and and kind of that going through the next couple months or so. So just want to sort of throw that out there. But, okay. Uh, ne- next week's an Angel episode called Dad. So I wonder what that's <laughs> about. New Dad Angel. That's funny. All right. Uh, sounds good. See you then.